Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Good morning. Bill Handel here on a cold Wednesday, February 15th. This is KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. And uh, we've got uh, some uh, news uh, we're going to cover today. Uh, and uh, trending, the White House announced that Tesla is going to open up parts of this charging network to all driver. Tesla expect to open up 7,500 of their charging stations by the end of 2024. And up to now, only Tesla vehicles uh, are allowed or can charge there. So there's uh, don't know yet how much government is going to pay Tesla, but they will. The other bit of news is uh, yesterday, uh, Diane Feinstein said she's done. Uh, she is retiring at the end of uh, her term in 2024. She will be 91 years old, the longest-serving senator, uh, certainly in modern times or on uh, in the Senate today. And uh, her career, interesting lady. First of all, she's known as uh, quite a liberal. I mean, California produces liberal senators. Uh, strangely enough, a couple of conservative, moderately conservative governors between uh, Duke Majin, Wilson, uh, Schwarzenegger, but the legislature and the Senate, liberal. And so uh, her background is rather extraordinary. Uh, she, um, uh, in 1955, I mean, we know how old she is, uh, she graduated from Stanford Law. She was a former model. Uh, and so she graduates from Stanford and wins an internship at the San Francisco DA's lawyer. Not a, she's not a lawyer, DA's office. Uh, so uh, here's what happened. Uh, because she was so politically connected and was really involved in politics, uh, Pat Brown was governor at the time, and that's the father of Jerry Brown. And, uh, and she, her dad was a doctor, and Pat Brown was a patient of his. So uh, they got to know each other. And so Pat Brown appoints her to the state parole board for women. And that gave her uh, the platform. She published a bunch of articles on criminal justice reform. Uh, she was a civil rights lawyer on the board of supervisors. They named uh, her to a watchdog panel. She's not a lawyer, I'm sorry. On jail conditions. I mean, it was a real tough time, too, when she came into uh, politics. In the 1970s, and I don't know if you remember this, if you were around in the 1970s, uh, San Francisco was a god-awful mess. The zebra killings left uh, 15 people dead. Uh, the, remember the Symbionese Liberation Army? And Patty Hearst was kidnapped. And that's when uh, San Francisco, um, that's uh, when the burger joints up there served, uh, started serving up the Hearst Burger. Did you ever hear about that? Uh, it, no. it was a hamburger, a hamburger bun with a patty gone. Anyway. Yeah, moving on. Oh, my. Oh, yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, she disappeared for a long time. In any case, uh, so there was terrorist bombings. Uh, gay rights were coming up, and it was San Francisco, and she was there. So she came up through the ranks. And then how did she become a national figure? Where did she really break through? Uh, Dan White, a conservative former supervisor, resigned from the board Unable to get his job back, kills the mayor, George Moscone, Moscone Center in San Francisco is named after him, and Harvey Milk, the openly gay supervisor who um, uh, became national headlines as one of the first openly gay people to serve in, uh, in local or state government. And uh, she uh, became the mayor because she was on uh, the uh, board of supervisors and uh, automatically she becomes acting mayor and then she runs for office and her career just takes off. I mean, that's a tough way to get into office, uh, the killing of a supervisor and uh, the mayor. She's the first woman senator from California. Uh, she is known as a liberal, has uh, been involved in prison reforms. Uh, she is uh, actually one of the most, fun, well, I would say fun, uh, but in terms of uh, her uh, being known in terms of the, the, the prison reform, 
Uh, she wrote a report on the prisons on vermin and glutinous jail meals. That was her thing, glutinous jail meals. Now, not uh, the inmates uh, being gluttons. It's just glutinous. It, it sticks together. You know, it's like oatmeal when it starts to really stick. And that's, that was uh, the jail meals. And she became a national figure because of bad oatmeal. Go figure that one out. And then, of course, uh, she just took off, became one of the uh, primary uh, and most well-known senators. Because when you're on the Senate for 30 years in the Senate, uh, you get to be fairly powerful. And uh, she succeeded uh, George uh, Duke Majin with a come-from-behind campaign. Uh, she then ran uh, for uh, uh, governor and uh, lost the election to Pete Wilson, one of uh, the more conservative members and one of the more conservative governors we've had. Um, supported abortion rights, uh, environmental protections against the death penalty, uh, and... What a special election then to fill the vacancy left by Wilson's uh, leaving uh, Congress to run. So um, she, oh, the federal assault weapons ban, that was her thing. Uh, she was a big, big player there. So uh, a very high-end liberal voice, a very potent liberal voice is going to leave the Senate. And we already have people that are running and who's going to replace her. And it's going to be either uh, very liberal insanely liberal, prohibitively liberal, or intergalactically liberal. All right, let's start with, um, it's going to be a Democrat. That's a given. Uh, first of all, this state is uh, by far the most liberal state. Well, it's arguing maybe Oregon, Washington, but no, really California is the most liberal state. Uh, maybe Massachusetts, but no. California is up and away the most liberal state and the most tax state in the union, as you know. Uh, we pay for the pleasure of being the most uh, liberal state, the most taxes, which uh, a big argument, why the hell do we live here? Well, because it's California. So who are the two front runners who have already announced? And uh, my take on it is one of them is going to win. And it's a question between uh, liberal and more liberal. Or it's a question between insanely liberal and prohibitively liberal. Or it's a question between nationally famous liberally, uh, liberal or intergalactically famous liberal. But my guess is it's probably going to be a democratic liberal. Just my guess. So let's start with uh, Katie Porter. Strangely enough, uh, a Democrat. And when I describe her as a liberal, uh, let's just say she's a protege of a woman by the name of Elizabeth Warren, who is, uh, who's more liberal in the Senate, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren? I think they fight each other for that title. Uh, the most, uh, the most liberal who, and I'll tell you what they do. They both, when there's a costume party, they both uh, dress up as Karl Marx and they both want to win that one. All right, and uh, do you know where she met uh, Warren, Senator Warren, when Warren was teaching bankruptcy law at Harvard Law School? I mean, those are some creds. They really are. So Porter moves to California. She becomes a law professor at UC Irvine, and uh, then uh, she is appointed uh, to the state's uh, independent uh, monitor overseeing board, uh, the um, It had to do with a mortgage settlement with banks, and she was appointed uh, to that board by uh, then Attorney Gen uh, uh, California Attorney General, a woman by the name of uh, Kamala Harris. And in 2018, she's elected to represent a part of Orange County in Congress, and this was the blue wave of Democrats. And she's already announced her 2024 campaign for U.S. Senate. And she did it before Feinstein said that she was going to uh, pull out, not run again. Porter is a single mom, a rising star in uh, the National Democratic Party. Um, yeah, she's got some issues, uh, but not very many. The other person is Adam Schiff. Strangely enough, also a liberal Democrat. And uh, he, he's got an interesting uh, background, really uh, credentials like crazy. Born in Massachusetts, goes to Arizona, 
and then California with his family. He goes to Monta Vista High School uh, in Danville, uh, valedictorian of his 1978 graduating class, voted most likely to succeed in high school, and went to a couple of schools that you may recognize, a Stanford undergrad, Harvard Law. He became a federal prosecutor. Uh, do you remember that FBI agent who became Russian spy? He prosecuted that case. He was elected to the state Senate in 96 in 2000 U.S. Congress. And uh, then uh, he's been there in a very powerful, powerful member of Congress, or at least was. So initially, he's looked at as a mild-mannered moderate focused on national security and foreign policy. That's really where his creds are. And he became a national figure when he led that first impeachment effort uh, effort against uh, President Trump at that time. And instantly made him a target for GOP lawmakers at the time. And what happened with Kevin McCarthy when he moved into the speakership? One of the first things he did is remove Schiff from the Intelligence Committee, where he uh, had, had led it under Nancy Pelosi, uh, where he developed years and years he spent on uh, that committee. And uh, one of the most uh, notable and probably knowledgeable members of that committee, and McCarthy throws him off because somehow he's a risk to national security. No, it's not politics. It has nothing to do with politics. It's all about Schiff being a risk. I, I guess he speaks Russian. No, he doesn't. I guess he's in contact with Russian. No, he he doesn't. Uh, he's got family members that are Russian or Chinese. No, not really. Uh, he likes to eat at Chinese restaurants. There you go. There's the risk. He likes to eat at Chinese restaurants. Therefore, the connection is with China. Damn right. He has to get pulled off the committee. Uh, you think I'm a little biased on that one? Do I sound a touch biased? All right. So of those two, uh, I don't know. I really don't know. My guess, Adam Schiff. Uh, then you got some who are may run Barbara Lee. She's a representative. Uh, she worked on the 1972 presidential campaign of Shirley Chisholm, the first uh, black woman to hold a seat in Congress. And uh, she won the mayo race in Oakland and super liberal, uh, way ahead of her time in terms of uh, racial issues. Uh, she was a staffer for Representative Ron Dellums. And then elected to the state legislature eight years and then Congress. And she just wins re-election time after time. And uh, is here's what she's known for. Uh, the measure that authorized President uh, George W. Bush to use military force after September 11th, it was unanimous except for one vote who said the president didn't have the authority to do that. That is uh, Barbara Lee. She's 76 years old, by the way. She's no... As uh, my mother used to say, she's no fried chicken. She is a very liberal person. Then you have other potential candidates. State Senator Brian Dahl, um, he's a Republican. You'll never hear about him again. Representative uh, Ro uh, Kahana, I've never heard of her. Kahana, uh, a Democrat, never heard of, uh, of uh, Representative Kahana, uh, not Kahana, Ko Kahana or Kana. And then Mark Miser, uh, or Muser, Republican conservative attorney, um, you've never heard of him either. Tell you who is not running, Kevin Faulkner, who was a big issue the first time against uh, Newsom. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is not running. Remember there was talk about that? Arnold Schwarzenegger, nah, he's not going to run again. And Eric Stahlwall, uh, they've been talking about it. Nah, he's not running again. So if I had to guess, it's going to be Adam Schiff. He's going to be... Uh, that's the next uh, senator. My my guess. Something unique about America. Well, there's a lot of stuff unique about America. But one of those, uh, which I've always wondered about, is our medical care, which is totally skewed vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the country. And I'm not going to talk about how horrible or good our American care is and how we need national uh, life, uh, national medical insurance. I'm not going to get into that. What I'm going to talk about is uh, what we have uh, going on in television and the prescription drug commercials, which are some of my favorite commercials out there. Truly, uh, there is nothing like 
sitting down, eating a sandwich, looking at uh, or watching and listening to a commercial and talk about a side effect of oily stools, for example. I find that uh, that's really pleasant. Or ED. Or uh, if uh, I have an erection for more than four hours, I want to see the doctor. Let me tell you, if I have an erection for more than four hours, I am looking up at the sky and screaming, thank you, God. I truly appreciate this. Never Moving on. Yeah, moving on. Just thought I'd mention that. Uh, So before 1997, uh, there were no such thing as prescription drugs commercials. Then the FDA uh, sort of relaxed its standards, and there was an argument as to constitutionality, commercial speech, uh, First Amendment, and it just burst wide open. I mean, the uh, the floodgates just opened up. And uh, there are two countries that allow commercials to run about pharmaceutical drugs, United States and New Zealand. Figure that one out, right? I guess because all those diseases that people get from sheep. I have no idea why, but in the end, those are the only two countries. So what happens? Well, they run ads. And uh, they'll uh, see Alice ads where people are sitting in bathtubs uh, holding hands. I've, the thought of sex in a bathtub uh, out in a, an open field and you're holding hands uh, – and you're naked. By the way, which of the tubs do they stoop in? Uh, I, I think it's a flip of a coin, isn't what it? What is in your Diet Coke? <laughs> Michelle, take it away. Well, no, I just you have to admit, these commercials are so much fun. It is so silly. It is. However, there's a serious side of this, too. And that is uh, the whole issue of uh, the way they advertise uh, and pushing of the drugs. And uh, it's here's what happens. Uh, they say, maybe you have. And then the symptoms... Uh, and go, go to see your doctor to see if insert name of drug says right for you. Uh, that is not just go to see your doctor. It's when you go see your doctor, the doctor is kind of afraid not to prescribe. What if something happens? You could have prescribed. The other side of it is doctors are actually hustled more than we are on television. $6 billion a year are spent on those uh, commercials. You know, more than $6 billion a year are spent hustling doctors to use those products. And I'll tell you what they don't mention on those products is the cost of those products. Yeah, that's sort of left off. Uh, you know, for example, uh, the miracle drug, legitimately miracle drug, getting rid of hepatitis C. I mean, cures hepatitis C, doesn't just get rid of symptoms, cures it. They don't even mention in small print at the bottom, it's $100,000 uh, a course. Oh, or some of the other drugs, $20,000 a course, or $5,000 a month. That's all off the table. Are there um, alternatives, generics? Yeah, there are, but then if there are, the, these folks don't advertise. Uh, it's, um, this is American medicine and American television. I'll tell you one of my favorite ones, and uh, I've seen this a lot, the dry eye disease one. Yeah. Yeah. If you have dry eyes, maybe you're suffering from dry eye disease or dry eye uh, syndrome. Uh, I just love that one. So here you go. If you have a broken leg, maybe you're suffering from broken leg syndrome (laughs) and this drug is going to help. Go see your doctor. And it works. I mean, it works. These doctors actually do end up prescribing. If you've seen a drug on TV, and even if the doctor goes, you know what, uh, you there's this other drug, which is basically generic, which is a tenth the cost. You go, no, no, I want the one I saw on TV, and doctors are wimps. You know why? Because they get sued. Because this will happen, and it has happened. I want that drug. You know what? That's way too expensive. It doesn't do what aspirin does. Something happens. You could have given me the drug. How's that for a lawsuit? Why? Because some sleazeball lawyer decides he's going to sue the doctor. That's not to say all lawyers are sleazeballs. Well, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Okay. I'll are you a that. lawyer? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's. I look in the mirror a lot. In any case, uh, it's it's a, th- what we do in America with this stuff is just tremendous, and it just it's going to get worse. Also, I watch the nightly news. If you watch the networks, all you see is commercials for pharmaceuticals. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Nothing else. Which show you uh, how uh, old, how it skews, right? And even the streaming channels, I'm noticing yeah, more yeah. and more. Well, if more, you and have... more because it makes so much money. These yeah. things. Yeah. Go figure. 
A story I want to share with you, and it has to do with the criminal justice system, and I'm going to bring Wayne in in just a second. First, I want to introduce this. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, the system for granting asylum in the U.S., for example, uh, it's a tough one. You're in front of a judge, uh, and Democrats and Republicans are on either side. The judges are either too liberal or too restrictive. But here is uh, the problem. Evidence is out there that says that judges are less influenced by these arcane rules, uh, but the cases are controlled more by, by the judge, him or herself. In other words, the bias the judge has. Uh, there was a 2001 study called Refugee Roulette. One judge granted asylum to 5% of a uh, Colombian applicants. Another judge in the same building using the same rules granted asylum to 88%. You got one judge, you had it. The other judge, it was almost impossible. So uh, the bottom line, and this is what studies have said. I mean, I'm not making this up, and I'm going to bring in Wayne in just a minute because Wayne is up to his eyeballs in this, having looked at this for almost three decades. And the study says that some judges show greater leniency towards defendants of their own race. Some judges are harsher on members of their own race. They don't want to show favoritism. And uh, it's all variability. It has to do, in many cases, these are studies. Is the judge in a good mood? Is the judge not in a good mood? Did the judge get stooped the night before by his girlfriend or uh, her girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever? Uh, it, does the job ha- uh, judge have some financial issues and there's a financial person, financial crime in, in, in front of the judge? I mean, it goes on and on and on. And then there may be an answer, which I'm going to bring up uh, in uh, just a a moment. I'm going to ask Wayne about it. But first of all, Wayne, when you look at this uh, article, this was in The Atlantic, and I say this is the accusation, uh, over the years, what have you seen and have you seen this? Oh, there is no question that at every stage of, and I know this article is is kind of focusing on, it seems like, criminal justice type things. Although, here's the thing. I guess the first thing I want to say is there is disparity everywhere in the judicial system. Criminal justice system, there's disparity as to who gets arrested, who gets charged, who gets bail, and what kind of sentences are handed out. But also, in you're talking there about asylum, which is not part of the criminal justice right. system. There's massive disparity depending on which judge you're in front of and what time of day it is and whether or not the judge ate lunch or skipped lunch. I know. It's crazy, isn't and it? And whether or not the judge, uh, the night before there was a game uh, and the judge's team won or the judge's team I know it's I know th- and these are studies that are out there just one quick aside uh my partner when I uh, started my law practice I did surrogacy and he did evictions and I and there was uh a judge that would older an older judge probably retired who did the master calendar and it would also do the default and assign attorney's fees for defendants that didn't show up literally it was the time of day when it came to attorney's fees he'd look at the clock and if it was 130 go $130 and if it was two thirty, it was two hundred and thirty dollars. That's how he assigned <laughs> legal fees in that case. I mean, well, it's just that crazy. Uh, see, the thing is, there are endless studies <laughs> that pick some kind of a data point. What time of day was it? Did the judge eat? Did the sports team lose? All of those things. And then when you compare, you always find that these factors that shouldn't have anything to do with it appear to affect the outcome. Here's the bottom line. It's a crapshoot all the time, every time. That's the basic rule. Criminal justice, asylum, even in regular old civil lawsuits. The question of, for example, I'm suing you because I have a trademark and you're doing a thing and I say that you're infringing on my trademark and how similar is your logo to my logo? You will see disparity there. You could take two logos, show them to 50 judges. Half of them will say they're they're too similar and it's an infringement. And the other half will say, oh, there's no infringement here. There's nothing that's consistent anywhere in the judicial system because at the end of the day, no matter what you do, it's a human being. 
of course, making all of these decisions about what happens to and, people and cannot be influenced or should not be influenced by politics, uh, should not be influenced by anything other than judicial determination and a reasonable approach to the law, reasonable interpretation of the law and the facts. So uh, there is and here is uh, and this is where I want you to jump in. Uh, that there is a uh, new mode coming in, a new uh, kind of looking at the judicial system, and that's actually using artificial intelligence. Not to make the decision as to what is, which way the defendant is going to be sentenced or which way the case is going to go, but to read the disparities, to read uh, how the facts are similar or not similar, and give the judge uh, basically guidelines, but across the board, to bring him in or at least suggest, because you're not going to change the law, you're still going to have discretion where discretion is allowed, but to rein in uh, the outside where a judge is a hanging judge or just didn't get laid the night before or somehow to control uh, and bring it less disparate. Uh, does, that, does that make sense to you and you think that's a good idea? Oh, first of all, I would say this is nothing new. The new, the new part of this is the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. The idea behind it, which is to try to present um, statistical information about the common resolutions of issues, has been in place for a long time. If you go back 40, 50 years in, for example, I'll speak to sentencing a federal criminal. Before we had sentencing guidelines, there was this thing called, there were two things. There was a parole score. And you would basically go, how many convictions prior does he have? How old is he? A couple of other things. And you'd get a score. And the other thing was called expected time to serve. And this was based on the crime, how much actual time in prison would be normal or, or, or average for this person. And that this was presented to the judge to try to help the judge see what's under the bell curve. And um, sometimes judges pay heed to it, and sometimes they don't, because at the end of the day, it's only advice. Now we're talking about bringing in the power of computing to bring this to every aspect. Right. And, that, and that seems fair. Just one quick, uh, and, and you know this story, but I love to share this, and that is uh, the luck of the draw when pulling a judge, a federal judge. And uh, John DeLorean is uh, the poster child of that particular situation. John DeLorean, who was caught on video literally selling drugs to FBI agents. I mean, they had him. There was no issue. He, for some reason, well, he was lucky. He got a judge, Japanese-American judge, who was put into an internment camp. Robert Takasugi. That's right. And he grew, uh, and this guy trusted the government as much as you or I trust the government if they're about to throw us in jail for some trumped-up charge. And you could, he was the one judge in the entire system that he could have gotten that, that basically set up the trial to get him off, and it worked. Can you imagine him going in front of um, a Manny Real? Well, it would have been absolutely different depending of on it the judge he pulled, and it is often. Yep. All right, Wayne. Thanks much. What do I do all the time when it rains? And uh, I turn to Jennifer, and what do I ask for, Jennifer? Snowpack! Snowpack report! Where and what is the snowpack report? Now, the snowpack, uh, I've explained, and Jennifer and I talk about this, it's a joke, but it's real, mm -hmm. is that they measure the snowpack with this fairly high-end, electronic, uh, computerized AI system of a guy standing in the snow mm -hmm. uh, with a big honking yardstick that's yep. like 10 feet high, pushing it to the ground and measuring where the snow is. That's your snowpack. They've been doing that for uh, same technology for 150 years, except they're thinking of uh, they're thinking of modernizing it with a a, a newer yardstick. <laughs> so uh, the snowpack, as much as I joke about the snowpack, is so critically important to us. A third of our water here in Southern California comes from the snowpack, and as you can imagine, uh, we're less. Uh, although right now we have more snow than we've had in years and years. Our snowpack in some areas is 100 and something percent of uh, annual, uh, the average. Here's the problem. It came uh, earlier. The snows are melting earlier. Uh, it's the, just the timing is completely skewed. 
which means that the droughts are going to come earlier. Well, we know we're in the middle of a huge drought, even with uh, a season or two of rainfall. Even last year, what, January was uh, the, uh, yeah, I think it was all through January. We had more rain than we have in decades, right? Yeah, it's been ridiculous. Right, well, and so- last year, same thing. But you know what we went into? We went into drought, uh, what was it, uh, I think January of last year, and then come February, we went into a drought where nothing happened February, March. Yeah. And uh, that is horrific. It skews the entire timing. And what it means is heavy rains and heavy snow, you think, are the best things in the world. Can't have them too early, and that's what's happening. Between the wildfires and the drought, climate change, it has just turned it all the way around. Not good news. Combine that with the fact we're in a super drought, the worst in 1,200 years, even with this aberrational single season or two-year season, uh, it doesn't bode well. Is there an answer to it? Can we deal with it? Yeah, it's like everything else. Uh, Very strict management, dealing with uh, the water usage, uh, desalination, uh, just, I, I mean, it goes on and on. There is nothing more important than the Delta smelt. For example, your kids eating. That doesn't come close to the Delta smelt. And uh, th- this is a fight between environmentalists who, uh, let's just say, have d- uh, just dived a little too deep, or is that dove a little too deep into the environmental movement? Divin. They have Divin. We will dive. They shall dive. They dove. They dove. Dove is good. Like, dive into it, handle. Yeah, like Dove soap. Uh, that's Dove. Or that's dove. dove. I knew that. It's one of those two. In any case, this is uh, a a fight, and uh, Governor Newsom, who you would think would be uh, Doctor Environmentalist, uh, is not. So this has to do with the rainfall, and the drought, and Chinook salmon, and of course the Delta smelt, and a few other uh, fish that uh, just the endangered fish. And the environmentalists are saying what the governor just did is a breakdown of law and order. And what did he just do? Well, what he said was the water that, in fact, came in, all this extra water relative to the last few years, uh, instead of letting it go down the rivers and the channels so that the fish that are in the lakes and reservoirs, can successfully go to the ocean and go and multiply, go ye and multiply, and then do whatever they do, and then swim back, and they have that somehow homing device that puts it back in the same lake that no one's ever understood how that works. And the governor said, you know what? We need the water. We need the water. We're in the middle of a drought. We've got water. Let's hang on to the water. Let's hold on to the water. Why? Because we're in a drought and look at, well, I just did the story on the, uh, the snowpack, how the snowpack, even in great years like this year, it's melting too quickly. There's too much, uh, there's, well, in the burn areas, it's crazy. You know, the re- reflectivity is everything, as you know, uh, when it comes to snowpack. Maybe you don't, but it has to do with staying as long as possible up on the mountains And it melts very slowly. Why? Because there's canopy of trees that the sunlight doesn't directly hit unless those areas are burnt out. Then there are no trees to protect the snow. And how about all the debris and crap? You know what that does? There's nice white snow. And then there's snow that's filled with debris and dirt, which is darker. What does that do? Reflect or absorb the heat. Exactly. So we've got some real issues going on. So... In good rains, like we just had, the governor says, okay, we are now going to keep the water. But wait a minute. It's actually against the law because we have a state law that doesn't let the governor do that. We have rules, uh, the state water board, their delta, float, uh, their delta flow rules uh, designed to help enforce the Federal and State Endangered Species Act, which protects those Chinook salmon and green sturgeon. I had no idea that sturgeon came in shades of green or blue. I have no idea. Uh, Delta smelt and long fin smelt. Now, if anybody knows the difference between long fin smelt and Delta smelt, uh, you've just won that question on Jeopardy. Um, uh, duh, the long fin smelt have longer fins well, than there the you Delta are. smelt. Well, there uh. you go, that have uh, bigger Deltas. Yes. Yes, okay. Of course they do. Of course they do. <laughs> they just are bigger in the Delta region. Uh, In any case, so what the governor has done 
is using his executive powers, he effectively has waived those restrictions because it's a state water resources board. And, of course, the environmentalists are going out of their minds saying, you don't have the power. Lawsuits have already hit. You don't have the power to do this. Yes, I do. I have executive power. He's already already pulled that off with uh, COVID restrictions and mandates where he bypassed the legislature. And remember all the lawsuits that hit saying he doesn't have the power to do this. This isn't right. Well, we're in the middle of a national emergency. And they said, we don't care uh, because you still have to go. Basically restricting the power of the governor really didn't have much to do with the national emergency. And here much the same thing. And it's really a fight between environmentalists. Yay, let's hear it for the green sturgeon, right? Uh, And farmers and water boards that say, you know what? We are in the middle of the worst drought in 2,400 or 1,200 years. We got a good thing going here for a little while. Let's hang on to the water. And the environmentalists are saying, absolutely not. You can't screw with the salmon sturgeon smelt. Those are paramount. Now, I'm as environmentally conscious as the next guy. Actually, no, no, not even close. But it was a good precursor to what I'm about to say. It gives it more credibility. I'm as environmentally conscious as the next guy. Who, by the way, probably isn't environmentally conscious at all. However, you reach a point where, you know, I'm fine with the smelt. I'm fine dealing with it, but not at the risk of what we're going through. That when you're talking about uh, when you're talking about the climate change and you're talking about the drought and you're talking about the snowpack melting much sooner uh, than it ever has, and by the way, that uh, that continues on. I mean, today this uh, we just had a great rainy uh, rainy season. Next year maybe not. Year after that maybe not. Maybe it goes into drought. Well, let me tell you, the burn areas are still there. The debris is still there. Uh, Because of climate change, uh, the rains and the snows come sooner, which means they melt sooner, which means that when we really need it uh, at summer, when we have true Southern California drought, even in winter seasons, the snowpack isn't there because it's already melted. And you just reach a point where uh, what's more important and environmentalists, when they reach this level, are out of their mind. It's like the gray owl. Remember the gray owl uh, controversy, Jennifer? You know, the spotted, oh, is it spotted owl? Spotted owl. owl. The spotted owl. Don't eat the spotted owl. Yeah. They were, by the way, done correctly. There's nothing more delicious than spotted owl. I just want to let you know that. That is now illegal. Why? And whole forests were kept up. They stopped logging, which, by the way, I'm fine when you're trying to Excuse me. When you're trying to uh, save an area where old growth versus uh, plantable and uh, sustainable growth, I get all that. But I got to tell you, there are a lot of owl species out there. And uh, it's, you know, the spotted owl, you're going to change everything for a species. Now, granted, it's really nice to have the spotted owl out there. I, I like spotted owls. Uh, matter of fact, I like to spot spotted owls. Oh, I have been many times to uh, owl spotting parties where you spot spotted owls. Actually, I haven't. But <laughs> where is the line? Well, Newsom, Mr. Liberal, Professor Liberal, Governor Liberal, has said, you know what? I'm going to opt for uh, you know keeping the water and making it work for our citizens. And if the smelt go. You know, then uh, we'll try. We'll give you lip service, but uh, we're not going to have uh, the two aren't even close. Did so- you know that the Delta smelt is considered endangered, yes. but the spotted owl is only considered near threatened? Huh. I didn't even know that was a category. Yeah. Near threatened. Yeah. I didn't know near threatened. I know threatened. And I know endangered. I know almost extinct. Near uh, threatened. I know. And extinct, I know. Because then you don't have to worry at all about uh, whether they're around or not because they're strangely extinct. Time for the House Whisper segment uh, with uh, Dean Sharp. Dean, of course, uh, heard uh, this weekend, uh, as always. Uh, Dean, good morning. Good morning, Bill. Okay. Uh, We've got a lot to cover this morning. And uh, start with they don't build them like they used to. And I want to talk about uh, real quickly and and ask your input. 
uh, when uh, I bought uh, the house prior to the Bergen Palace, it was 1927 home, and uh, we had to do work. We remodeled it and uh, went down to the studs. Yep. Real two-by-fours made out of redwood. The electrical yeah. system, uh, man, forget about this conduit or just wire pipe, solid pipe that the wires ran through. Double-hung windows. For those of you that don't know about double-hung windows, that's when you have twin boys and God has been very good to them. That double-hung window. <laughs> Come on, you know that. <laughs> So, all right. Yeah. Moving, all right. On. Moving, on. moving on. Okay. Moving on. Yes. So you got me on that one. I did. Dave, there you go. Uh, so Dean, let's, let's talk about, uh, the, the statement. It isn't as, uh, you know, they don't build them like they used to because in every other area of life, that's a crock. Oh, it used to be so much better in the old days. No, it wasn't. They didn't have air conditioning. Uh, no, it wasn't. You didn't have the modern amenities. No, it wasn't. And on and on and on. This is legitimate, isn't it? They don't yeah. build them how they used to. It is. It, it's legitimate. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you what. It's a very nuanced statement when it comes to the construction and design industry. It's something we hear all the time, right? Because people are living in their houses and it means a lot to them that uh, craftsmanship is in materials and so on. I put it this way, and this is why, by the way, we're spending both shows this weekend uh, kind of using that phrase as a launching point for talking about all sorts of facets of your home. Uh, just kind of a whirlwind tour, but they don't build them like they used to. In some ways, that's a really good thing because engineering and the kinds of materials that we get to use these days so much better than, for instance, what we were doing, uh, you know, 100 years ago in your 1920s house. Uh, but uh, craftsmanship uh, and in the actual integrity of the construction process yeah, that is uh, in most areas long gone, and yeah, that's why we're working so hard to bring it back. So, yeah, yeah, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. Yeah, real people uh, or modern day people, those of modern day people. I mean, if you didn't have a home of that age, it was real lath and plaster. Uh, I mean, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and when I talk about those double hung windows outside of the joke, uh, these are windows that had uh, the cords on either side, and they moved up and down with these lead weights. Uh, yeah. And I, I miss those so you know what I mean I, I, the argument can be said now for a double hung window you know it's all all the mechanism is built into the window frame itself there are these metal springs which by the way after a while will wear out and need replacing the old style double hung with the cords that ran up over a pulley through the stud and, and a lead weight just hanging in the wall space okay these are gravity driven windows and they will work until gravity fails, which means they just work. I mean, 100-year-old windows working just yeah. fine because it's gravity. That's it. It's right. just a counterbalance. Right. It's brilliant. Just to give you an idea, and you and I have talked about that. So when I bought that place, and the whole place was double-hung windows and it had never been touched, and the place was falling apart, I had to remodel the whole thing, I remanufactured. I brought those windows and brought them back to new. I can't even imagine what, I mean, it, it cost me a fortune, but, uh, you know, they're so wonderful. The technology of the old technology, it's just lovely. I mean, I built that, the house was built in 1927. I brought it back to, you walked into a brand new 1927 home. Right, right. And Which it, was brilliant and beautiful. It's my it, favorite era of uh, American yeah. home uh, construction. And it cost me buckets of money. So uh, engineering, though, is, is different. Materials are way, way different, aren't they? Let's talk about uh, the it, they don't build them like they used to, and you don't want to have them built like they used to. Let's go through that list. That's right. Well, like plumbing. You know what lead and oakum is? Do you know what that is, Bill? Uh, no. I okay. don't. Well, I know what uh, lead is. Uh, oakum is some kind of a tarry substance. Oakum, oakum is uh, is like a hemp fiber. Okay. Uh, and uh, and rolls of oakum, uh, they kind of look like dreadlocks, <laughs> essentially. They come in big rolls. All right, so if you've got an older home, this was absolutely, I'm sure, true about your 1920s home. If you've got an older, older home with cast iron drain pipes, okay, then you have lead and oakum as a part of your plumbing system. And what it is is the one side of a cast iron pipe has a bell on it, or what we would call the female side of it. And then the male side slides into that. But they don't slide, they don't glue together because it's cast iron. So what they literally used to do is uh, we would take a, uh, a a strip of oakum. This this by the way, this is the same thing that you that you, that sailors pound down in between floorboards on a sailing ship. 
uh, you would take this this roll of oakum, uh, shove with a chisel this oakum down inside that joint. And the whole point of the oakum is to keep the molten lead, which we're about to pour into the joint, from seeping into the inside of the pipe. So we shove the oakum down in there as a stopgap, and then plumbers uh, would pour molten lead down in that joint until it's sealed around the pipe, and that was a typical pre-World War II uh, plumbing seal on cast iron pipes, hmm. lead and oakum. That I, You know what? I'm sure I had that because the house was that old. Tell you what else I had, and that is uh, the gravity furnace, which I brought back to it worked, and I used the gravity furnace. And then the unfortunate part of uh, the ducting, which was just loaded with asbestos. And right. uh, it looked like a movie set when the hazmat guys came in and took away the uh, the asbestos. So let's talk about the benefits uh, of one or the other, especially the gravity heater. God, I love the it. benefits of living with asbestos in your home. <laughs> no, no. Uh, the, the benefit of the gravity heater uh, and the real downside of asbestos, even if, well, it, if it's encapsulated, for example, with the aluminum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so. Uh, so first of all, so everybody understands what a gravity furnace is, uh, is uh, first of all, you're only going to find it in a house that has a basement, some form of basement. Now, it, may, it doesn't have to be a big basement, especially here in Southern California. Classically, like in the 20s and the teens, we weren't building full basements, but we were building uh, raised foundation houses and just enough of a basement pit to basically have the furnace down there. A gravity furnace is uh, its a little bit of a misnomer. It just kind of operates on the idea that hot air rises and cold air descends. And so a gravity furnace is just a big old furnace down there in the basement. No fans. That's the thing. No fans. No forced air heating. It heats up air. Uh, air travels up through the vent pipes, and it just sort of oozes into each room, usually on floor vents in each room right. because, again, right. there's no forced air heating. So it starts at the bottom. It's not a bad idea were it not for the fact that gravity furnaces, as far as uh, energy is concerned, is ju are just massively yeah. inefficient. And but there are no moving parts. Right. Totally silent, too. Yes. I mean, that is, you know, air conditioning, heating go on, you hear that whoosh doesn't exist. Totally silent. I loved mine. I loved it. Even though I had a forced air system, I would only use it for air conditioning. Uh, right. Well, one of the reasons why I'm actually bringing it up this weekend is we're going to talk about the fact that there were some good thoughts about the gravity uh, system. In other words, those vents on the floor pushing, uh, not pushing, but allowing hot air uh, to rise, heat to rise from the floor to the ceiling. They were actually really, really comfortable ways of heating a home. Inefficient as far as the heating process, but comfortable inside the room. Like you said, there's no noise. There's no air blowing on anybody. Uh, so what has taken over now is for all these decades, forced air heating systems. And what we're finding is now a return, kind of a full circle. Now we're not going back to gravity furnaces ever again, but what we are doing now uh, on cutting-edge homes, and which I wish, if I was king of the home world, it would be in every home, radiant floor uh, heating in every home. And radiant floor heating, that's coils of uh, warm material in the floor itself, essentially, Bill, functions just like your old gravity furnace in terms of the way it heats the room. The heat comes from mm -hmm. the floor. It rises up through you and me first because we're down there closer to the floor, and then it eventually finds its way you know, uh, up yeah. and out to, to the top of the room. It's a great way to heat a house. And it doesn't use much, much electricity, uh, and uh, it's great in the winter when your feet hit uh, the bathroom floor that is really warm. It's a lovely way to do it. By the way, my gravity heater, you're right, sucked up energy, but those were the days when uh, gas was dirt cheap. Gas has always been perennially very cheap here in Southern California until recently. And yeah, then, I, well, you know, back in the 20s, I mean, every, I mean, we not were in the 20s. Down I'm talking about when I had it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm just saying, back back in the day when gravity furnaces were 
were initiated, you know, everything was cheap. I mean, we were cutting down redwood trees just to, you know, build two-by-four studs for our house. Yeah, that was kind of neat when I did that. All right, so uh, the <laughs> technology, I know you're going to go through all of it, but there is some very neat technology out there, one of them being windows, one of them being, being the glass in windows. There, yes. it's, uh, you don't say it's, they don't build them like they used to. Well, you do, but negatively speaking. Exactly. We do not want to build windows like we used to, not in terms of the way they seal air into a room. We want, you know, we, we have learned. And if there's any one thing in the last 10 years that the building industry, as far as homes are concerned, have learned, and that is air sealing a house right alongside insulating. Air sealing a house is so critical for energy efficiency and comfort. And and it makes sense when you think of a house, the shell of a house like the hull of a boat. It doesn't matter how thick the walls are, what they're made out of. If air can get inside like water could get inside the hull of a boat, guess what? That thing's going down. So uh, the point is today's windows better than they have ever been. IGUs, insulating glass units, dual glazed with all sorts of metallic coatings on them to keep UV light out, uh, to uh, filter, and, and the UV light as a result uh, doesn't fade our floors, doesn't fade our drapes, doesn't break down our furniture, and so on and so forth. So uh, it is really the era. We've never built windows better than we build them right now today. And just a quick word uh, about appliances. Uh, 20 years ago, they wouldn't even recognize uh, what appliances we have today. It'd be a science fiction movie, wouldn't it? I think it would be. Things like, you know, I mean, still to this day, we just had some friends over and they were looking at our induction cooktop, right? And I know you and I have talked about induction ad nauseum, but it's just so funny to me that uh, even now people are like, it does what? It heats the pan through a towel and you don't even, it doesn't even, heat doesn't even come out of the cooktop? What are, you know, where are we? Is this the Jetsons? And so, yeah, appliances have come so so far. All right. So uh, this weekend, uh, both days are they don't build them like they used to. Um, yep. And we're okay. just going to use it as an excuse to move through your home. Talk about the materials that are available to you today. All right. And I know you're going to do flooring, which the technology is extraordinary with flooring. And then, of course, the tools and the gizmos. I love listening to that stuff. All right, my friend. Thank you. We'll catch you this weekend, Dean. Thank you, Bill. Have a good one. Saturday, 6 to 8, just by, prior to Handle on the Law. Sunday, 9 to 12, uh, right after uh, Jesus, and then at home with Dean. All right, Shannon Farron, you're coming up in just a moment. What's on the menu this morning? Well, if you heard the show yesterday, you know the emotional jihad I put Gary through last night, enforcing the notebook on him on Valentine's Day. We'll find out how that went. Also, Dianne Feinstein is not going to run for re-election, but it's news to Dianne Feinstein. Why are reporters tracking her down and asking her any questions? She is 89 years old. Just let the woman, you know... Retire in peace, I guess you should say. Yeah. Uh, Also, it looks like we will be talking parenting today. What is commando parenting and why kids these days have no guts, no grit? It's all cowardice out there with ghosting being the number one way to break up. Yeah, commando parenting. That's an easy one. That's parenting without your underwear on. I don't think you you should do that. No? No, that sounds like a felony. Okay, thank you. Uh, Coming up, Gary and... You have a case. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually very funny. Coming up, Gary and uh, Shannon. Shannon, you have a good show. Thank you, sir. Uh, This is KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio 